Hello, and welcome to the Better Relationship Podcast. I'm your host, Dolphin Casper, and I'll be exploring exciting and interesting conversations with people who have solutions, stories, and expertise to help you in your journey towards richer and more meaningful relationships. Stay tuned. This is a a premiere, a first-time event. Uh, Every five episodes, the Better Relationship Podcast is going to identify a topic or something in, in modern or pop culture that feels really poignant and relevant to the world of relationships. And I'm going to invite some really incredible guests on to join me in a dialogue, uh, in this case, a trilogue, about uh, what our experience of that happening is, that, that, that entity, whatever, that thing that we're framing, and, um, and hopefully have a conversation that, that sheds some light on pieces that it may not be easy to see, um, to provide some maybe granularity and nuance so we can really see more of, oh, like, where does this come from and why is it there and how does it impact me? And, and I think maybe more importantly than any of that, how do you as an individual bring more presence, more awareness, more capacity and skill to the area of your life that, that is, you know, uh, objectively the most important area in terms of longevity, in terms of well-being, in terms of happiness, like, our relationships are the center of all of that. So um, I want to thank Ariel Brown and Philippe Lewis for taking the time to join me on this uh, auspicious podcast. Um, they're both coaches and educators. Philippe is also involved in in creating and facilitating incredible live events. And uh, I've been able to meet and work with them over the last few years. And just it's an absolute pleasure whenever we get together. So Ariel, Philippe, thank you for being here. And I'm looking forward to the conversation, which is the the newest uh, iteration of Barbie, the the film that was released just a little while ago. Um, so we're going to talk about the the kind of areas that that we identified initially were uh, identity, gender roles, culture, and and Ariel brought up uh, a piece around like what are the implications of of how and where we don't we don't find connection cohesion. In other words, like where is this conflict and and what we might call a war coming from where where is it that we can't find each other in this relational space um so again thank you both for being here and let's let's get into the material it's good to be here yeah total pleasure does anyone want to start does anyone uh so you know Philippe and I had a chance to talk a little bit last night uh, Ariel watched the film and and then was sort of privy to our conversation um do either of you two have something to kind of start us off i, I think the Okay, I'm actually going to say one thing and I want you two to kind of jump on it. I also watched Gran Turismo recently. And there's a there's a thing that's happening that I think is is a sort of like an undercurrent that's that is so um slow in its evolution that we may not have noticed, but in some ways these films are 90 or 120 minute advertisements. Like let's not forget that that Barbie and Mattel, that's a real entity is a real product it's a real corporation and they have interests in how their product is perceived by you know the mainstream reality out there so Gran Turismo was really clearly that like they were promoting the game the simulator in Barbie in an interesting kind of complex where they're promoting Barbie so do you two notice that and and let's start there and there's a bunch of places we want to go I mean I would say Obviously, if if a if a movie is going to be about a product, it's going to create it's going to create waves in terms of awareness of that product. So there's no way around it. 
And that product was created initially, ostensibly, to, to answer a need. The, 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 the woman who created this initially had, had a sense that this, this would offer little girls sort of a, an avenue for, for discovering new roles, new ways to identify that, that is more than just mother or, or part of a household. So, so I would say that the products that come out in our society are a reflection of who we are or what, or what we potentially need. Of course, it can also go further than that. Um, but I think there's no, there's no surprise that if you make, make a movie about Barbie or Gran Turismo, that, that this will, this will bring it up in people's, um, in, uh, in people's awareness. And of course this will be, this will promote the product in and of itself. And I also have a sense that the movie was made to be in line with the times where identity is a, is a big deal. Like we're, we're, we're going through what I would imagine, what I would interpret as an identity crisis, so to speak, as we move towards maybe perhaps no identity, but just being who we are. And I think the movie points to that. And I think the movie capitalizing on that also makes itself more palatable for the public in this day and age of, of identity crisis, I would call it. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. It's interesting because when I watched the movie, it was actually difficult for me to watch. It, it was difficult for me to make my way through the movie. And there were actually so many moments where I just felt to myself, I wish this was over. And it, it, I actually get genuinely curious about, you know, what a young girl who's 13 or four, I don't even like eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 young girls, what, what they take from the movie. I, I, I'm genuinely curious about it. Um, that in itself is an interesting inquiry to me. One of the things that was most unique to me and is not a lens that I would have thought of is how deeply um, at effect Ken was to Barbie. That was actually one of the most like surprising aspects of the movie that was very curious to me to look at. Um, what does a seven or an eight-year-old girl take away from that movie about what she wants, especially because Barbie entered into the real world at the end? Um, I feel like probably one of the most poignant parts of the movie where I actually felt tears when is when at the very end Barbie and Ken were talking and he's like it's Barbie and Ken and then what if Barbie was just like well what if Ken is Ken and Barbie is Barbie like there was something there about just like a seeding in the self that was very interesting to me so I, I don't actually know if I answered your question but <laughs> that's where we are now yeah well it brings something to mind that Philippe said yesterday and that is um you know you can take because it's art. It's a form of film is a form of art, right? There's there's an expression and then there's an interpretation of that expression. And and you can take something that that might not have had at least the awareness or intention of depth or complexity or nuance. And then the the viewer, the 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 receiver of that art can imbue all of this meaning that that maybe wasn't there in the intention. And I wonder how much of that is going on, like with all of the kind of social commentary about the movie and its place in society in modern times, you know, how much are people just projecting their own 
their own views and beliefs and, and how much of it was really there. Now, of course, we don't know the answer to that question, but we know it's going on. We know that, that, that the makers of the, of the piece of art have their own thoughts, beliefs, feelings, awareness, intention. And then the, the people who consume or interact with that art, again, that goes through a whole other process of, of, of meaning making and interpretation. So I'm just curious, Philippe, maybe you can pick up that thread and I would love to hear what Ariel has to say about that as well. Uh, so I'm, I was I was just continuing to um, to feel into um, what I said earlier. Like you, the question you asked is, well, the, Barbie is a product. Ken is a product, and it was brought into a movie front and center, like more so than I've seen a lot of movies. I bet, but you have Mario Brothers. You've got you know, there's other movies that are sort of taking a thing that existed for the sole purpose of being sold as a product and reused as uh, reused into another product and it's often sold as art but you could also say that video games are a form of art obviously there's artists that are a part of it um, but for me this differentiates sort of like pure art which is not for the purpose of selling it is not for the purpose of fulfilling a need it's for it's often for the purpose of expressing something or supporting or, or supporting the uh, the discovery of something now, here we have a... Go ahead. you want to say something? Well, do you want to complete your thought? Because uh, it's something to... Yeah, go for it. Yeah, I wonder I, I wonder about the quality of the discovery when there's, a, when there's such a strong purpose behind, uh, behind the art. And even, even motivation, like, like purpose. That's right. There's, there's, there's a specific motivation behind the expression of the art that easily and almost invariably hijacks the purity of what that expression is maybe meant to be. And I'm using some words that might not resonate with everyone, but but yeah. like that idea of our innate needs being hijacked for something that's actually quite superficial is, uh, is sort of a hallmark of our times. And and I and yeah. I think the implications of that are massive, especially when it comes to relationships. So Ariel, get in there, but I'd like to kind of get into more of that as well. And yeah, I mean it's in it's interesting like this the, the question you had of like the selling aspect because I am genuinely curious what Mattel was hoping to achieve um in this. Like it right. makes me think of the moments. It makes me think of the moments of how so they brought in this theme that um it was actually the owner of the Barbie that was influencing the experience of the Barbie which influenced the type of Barbies that were coming out into the world so, like they came out with normal Barbie they came out with depressed Barbie you know and at the end Mattel was like oh yeah well normal Barbie will sell um and then it makes me think like the actually the last five ten minutes of the film um Along with the last line being, what are you here for, Barbie? To meet my gynecologist. Like, I just cracked up at the end of that. But um, when Barbie was having that moment with the woman, Ruth, who founded Barbie, of saying, I'd actually rather be the person that visions what is made than the thing that is made. And I think that's an interesting inquiry if we're looking at what the daughter was saying about how Barbie just created these unrealistic standards for young girls. It's like, it's this not even perfectly shaped, but unrealistically shaped woman that creates this ridiculous standard that creates body dysmorphia and not enoughness. 
when the original intention was for Barbie to apparently be something that inspires women. And at the end, Barbie says, we know, I actually don't want to be this idyllic thing that was made. I'd actually be, be more interested in being a part of like visioning what is made. So if there is a, a message in there to little girls who want to vision themselves as Barbie, Barbie's actually just saying, I don't want to be this thing that was made. I actually want to be the dreamer who creates the things. So that's an interesting piece in there. Yeah, I mean, that I'm going to just peel back a couple layers and just say that if you want to go there or if this is sort of where you're at in terms of kind of yeah, just making sense of 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 what's going on behind the surface, like that's a metaphor. To me, that's a metaphor for there's us, our identity, our sense of ourselves, and then there's the us, the kind of presence and the agency that's making choices in real time that then becomes our life. You know, like the, the a lot of people, especially I think in modern times, we're so identified with our sense of self that we forget that we have that dimension of agency. It feels like we're just what we are and life's unfolding the way it unfolds and that's our lot in life. And and so, you know, that could be, if you want it to be, an invitation to realize, oh yeah, like what I really want to do in this life is to be the creator of the life versus what's created. So I, I love that. I love that insight and I love that that use of that as a metaphor for, oh yeah, when I'm when I'm really just relating to how I show up and how I express myself that that's much more empowering to me and it's much more interesting. A little pivot in terms of relationship. Like you brought up something really interesting, uh, Ariel, about how, and you could feel it in the movie, right? Like these interests from Ken and these interests from Barbie and that they weren't aligned. There wasn't a sense of like relational cohesion. There wasn't a sense of like, yeah, we're on the same team and we're, we're up to the same thing, uh, which I think a lot of people in modern dating and relationships can relate to. Um, but this question that I think we're always asking ourselves behind the surface is like, oh, like who started this? Or, or maybe what we're mostly thinking is they started it and it's their fault that there's all these problems. And how do I figure out how to kind of get my needs met? So, you know, we can talk about the movie or we can start to bring it into like, well, what do we do about that question of like, who, who is to blame for the mess of our relationships? Would you like to speak on that, Philippe, or would you like me to go? Yeah, it's interesting. And um, I'm, I'm running a men's leadership mastermind right now. And this is actually something that came up in um, our call last week because one of the men sent me this TikTok video of this, this woman who's talking about this apparently new trend called the great divorce, where apparently there's this trend happening in culture now where this woman's talking about women have gotten to the, and I'm quoting now because this isn't necessarily my words, but that women have gotten to a point where they're done settling for not enough connection in their marriages and they're just not going to tolerate it anymore. And as a result, there's going to be less marriages. There's going to be less remarriages. And we just started to get into this general generalization and we could get into a whole portal about the generalization that women do their work or want to grow and evolve more than men and that women get tired of it and that they're not going to tolerate it anymore. And we got into this conversation of, for example, power, power dynamics between men and women and how the patriarchy created a situation where men tend to have more power and women tend to have less power. And, and 
patriarchy affected negatively both men and women. It's not that men have all the power and they're these free beings who aren't negatively impacted by the patriarchy and that it's just women. And I know I'm generalizing a lot right now, but it's this question of to what degree are we assuming that it was just men who created the patriarchy? To what degree are we making the patriarchy purely men's faults? And how does that play into the battle between men and women? And what if, like I asked the men, what if it wasn't either side that created the patriarchy? What if whoever created, whatever created the patriarchy is beyond it was men or it was women? And if we hold that lens, that this is no one gender's fault, how do we come to this conversation differently? Elite? Beautiful. Um, as, you, as you already know, uh, uh, Dolphin, you, I approach... I approach a lot of these conversations from uh, from the perspective of what would a secure person do, and when I think of like who started it, like this this to me just just off the top of my head sounds like two teenagers or two young children, you know, pointing at each other saying he started it. No, he started it, and to for me to say you started it, I'm from where I'm sitting, I'm essentially saying you are responsible which makes me the person with no responsibility and no power. And a secure person approaches a relationship completely differently. They say, okay, here we are. Yeah, there are factors that came into play. And, um, and I agree with Ariel. I think, I think the lens of what if nobody started it? What if, what if it's just how we evolved that got us where we got a thousand years ago and a hundred years ago and 10 years ago and right now? There is no way to go back. We can't do this again. We are where we are right now. And a secure person typically would just say, here we are. What can we do? What, what, how can we influence the factors that are at play, either the circumstances or, or the mindset that gives us where we are right now? Can we shift the mindset a little bit so that we're approaching each other with more trust? Is that possible? Not blind trust, but I want to extend a little bit more trust right now because I can. I can take that step. Maybe you can take that step and we can meet. And so who started it tends to feel more about blame and scapegoating and taking less responsibility than saying, let's pull, let's collaborate towards a better future or towards a better outcome. And often it, it requires making some changes around like what's the, the environment that gives it, that gives the, the, the circumstances. And let's, let's change how we approach this. And in coaching, that's what you do, right? You, you're, you're working, and even therapy, you work with the client so they can upgrade their story to one that's more empowering. And you also support them, especially in coaching, in, in changing their circumstances so that actually things occur more easily and better and more in a more empowering way for them. So, so I think the, I think the movie supports that in the sense of saying, in the sense of saying all of these gender roles are actually no longer useful where they're not with the times. And really the direction we're going is what's real for you as a human and what can you contribute to the people around you and to society? Yeah. I, I love the, I love all of what you just said. Uh, one thing I did notice that I liked is that, you know, at the end there was sort of the implication or the, the, the insinuation like, oh, we'll, we'll just set Barbie land back to the way it was. And that that wasn't 
what they wanted. It was like, no, 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 no. We don't want it the way it was. We want there to be a, a kind of possibility space. As I, I talk about, I talk about possibility space. Like if we're here and now, like you brought this up, Philippe. If we're just here and now, present to what's occurring right now, and we allow abstraction and and projection to kind of fall into the background, something else starts to go on. We we start to have agency to go. Well, what what do I most want to create right now, and how do I most want to be in service to that creation? Um, that's a different conversation to have. And you know, to bring in this idea of identity, I think identity does something for us. Otherwise, we would see it for what it is and we'd allow it to play much less of a role in our lives. Like to me, identity is extremely limiting and in many cases debilitating emotionally and somatically. And yet we cling to it. Most, most people really hold tightly to their identity. That's not just because, it's because the identity has certain utility for us. It allows us to be somebody in relation to what's going on and especially if we have a worldview that the world is scary and untrustworthy and dangerous and and harmful, then being a victim is actually preferable than to just be vulnerable to that reality. So, so I think this is really good for us. This is my my personal take, but I think it's really good for people to to go. Oh, there's nothing wrong with identity. We don't need to beat it up or, or scapegoat the identity, but but for it to be so central that we're not willing to allow it to soften so that we can be with what's really going on. I mean, there's, there's so much that gets in the way there. So I wanted to uh, bring up one more piece from the movie and then hear what you two had to say about it. Um, at the beginning, obviously it was set in Barbie land with very traditional kind of Barbie framework. And in a way I thought, I that was hard for me. I found the first five minutes the most painful. It just felt so superficial and like, oh God, <laughs> I was thinking, is, is there going to be two hours of this? Um, but what I appreciated as the as the movie evolved was that first kind of stanza framed Ken in a way that I think a lot of women feel framed by by the kind of more sort of traditional and rigid gender roles of our of our human culture. In other words, like only in the male gaze does the woman feel her value. I think that's that's a, a an experience that a lot of women have. And it's been in dialogue within sort of feminist and then progressive circles. Like, oh, like, well, what does it mean if that's not the be all end all for a woman's existence? And and how did that role like stifle and hold women in a place that wasn't good for them and for society? So I liked the flip of that and I like how it softened over time. But there was also a way where, you know, the way the men were framed in that movie was not very flattering and it didn't really come into a fullness where I felt like the way men were being sort of described felt empowering to me as a man so anyway i'm just curious for the two of you whether you notice that and anything that you have to say about it yeah there's um there's so many different pieces that come up for me here um you know i i really liked salip that you brought in the the conversation of secure attachment because to me it's it's almost a less charged way of talking about trauma relational trauma, which I think the majority, at least of America, is is currently operating in, um, which I feel like so much of that in the simplest terms is just coming down to not feeling safe in ourselves, not feeling safe and secure in being able to bring our authentic self forward in a way where we feel like we're going to be accepted and welcome just in our essential nature versus I need to fulfill this checklist of roles 
that society has told me is what I need to be, to be attractive, to be desirable, to be worthy of belonging. Um, and I love this conversation because I actually just want to state that I think that the, I do agree that in certain contexts, identity is helpful. Um, you know, showing up to an occupation, like I am a coach, I am a teacher, I am a facilitator. It is helpful for me to ground into those roles um, because it allows me to, to play them out and also be known in a certain way that makes everyone feel more grounded and safe. Um, and there's a certain degree when we get into the nuance of human relating and, and just relationship that I find that the less secure a person is in themselves, the more fixed identity that we will hold on to. Because the less I really trust myself and choose myself, and love myself, regardless of what happens, the more I'm going to be attached to um, a certain idea of what is right and what is wrong and what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. And as long as I stay in that container, I know where I wel I'm welcome. I know where I'm not. I know where to stay. I know where not to go. Um, and I know I'm safe here. We could get into a whole conversation around why that's challenging living in the world that we do. Um, but I just want to, I want to, ground in an, an example um, and then just curious what's alive for you both of you know this idea of of what was a secure attachment person do especially in what you brought up dolphin of um how ken was portrayed as like i only have validity when i'm being seen by barbie and let's take that into um the dyna the dynamic that a lot of women can experience with men this generalization that women's worth and value has been associated with our physical beauty and our and our desirability of men and that's been a lot of my own personal journey which has led me to the work that i do of how deeply there was a desire to be seen and chosen and desired by a man and how much both self-sacrifice occurred in me and feelings of victimization at the hands of men that created in me and also how much um anger and resentment that created towards men. Um, for the majority of my life, I'm 36 now, and I would say for the majority of my life leading up to like my late 20s and even early 30s, I would definitely identify as being more anxious attachment. And over the past five, six years, there's been such a strong and deep like realization of I'm co-creating this dynamic that I judge men for, where I might be feeling dropped by men, but there's a way that I'm actually abandoning myself and objectifying myself in the way that I'm angry at men at that's having me play into this dynamic. And I actually need to start learning how to hold myself and love myself and choose myself in the way that I'm wanting to be by men so that I don't cave in on myself in any moment where a man doesn't choose me. And it's such a deep, often uncomfortable and powerful shift of what, what, would, a secure, what would a securely attached person do? What would a securely attached woman do? Rather than continuing to become what I think men want me to become, 
what does it look like for me to deeply honor what I believe brings me value and actually be willing to let go of these patterns that will create so much suffering and let go of the story that there's something wrong with me. And it's been a game changer. So I'll pause there. Wow. I mean, I, I, there's lots bubbling here. Philippe, do you have anything clear to? <laughs> so many things. Um, that was, that was really great. Um, Ariel, um, it, it, my mind went in three different ways. Um, but just go to go back to the secure piece, you know, there's the question, what would a secure person do? And then I, if I answer, if I complete this question, what would a secure person do with someone who doesn't want to play or doesn't want to play well? What do you do in that case? And by saying, you know, if there's a question, if, if you're trying to play with someone, like trying to, to be in a relationship with someone and they, they turn you down, what do you do with that? What's the reaction? And of course, insecurity is, is reacting with somebody who's insecure would react badly because they would make it mean something about themselves rather than, oh, maybe it's not their speed or it's not what they want right now. They're not ready or that, you know, in the, from a consent, re being ready, willing, able, and informed, maybe they're just one of those things are missing. And instead of just allowing them to have that and have compassion or even curiosity about that to actually say, oh, it's not, it's, it's not, it's not their choice. It's not, they're, they're, they're not choosing, they're rejecting me. And so when I take that question into identity, <coughs> what I'm noticing is a secure person, what, based on what Ariella was saying, a secure person would use identity as a tool, but he, they would use it well. They would use it in the right cases. You know, if they're a coach, they would use that identity and the power that comes with it responsibly or more so with a curiosity around how is this power impacting you? We're playing a game here. We're, we're, we're in a relationship that involves my role or my identity and your role or your identity. And are we doing this collaboratively in a way that works well for the two of us? But if the person's insecure, they will misuse that tool because they will make it about them more than they one more than they should, one more than is effective. And it will just you create a re, create a game that's completely out of balance. And then you get and then when something breaks down, we're going back to the question of who's responsible? They started it. And so that's what came to Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, for me the you know the film uh, similar to you Ariel I, I it was hard for me I, I, it wasn't an enjoyable experience um but it had enough in it and then I think with this conversation looming I, I you know I I'm good at using what I don't like when I know what it can be in service to um but a, as I watched the film I'm all, I'm kind of looking for like what what would be the maximum value of this narrative? You know, like that. And then that's actually, I think, something that we can start to do with with our lives and our relationship. When we're insecure, especially if we have a long standing kind of history of insecure attachment, 
we're not relating to that. We're not relating to how can I use this to move forward or how can I use this to, to feel more connected to my own authenticity or you know my true needs and desires here. What we tend to be relating to is this is not okay and or I am not okay and how do I get rid of this feeling, right? And, and, and so, you know, throughout the movie, we got to see that with the main characters. It's just like a constant state of distress, actually. You know, Barbie in in starting to, um, you know, some some kind of wave of transformation happening in her and her being terrified. Like, what what does this mean? What does this mean about me and my life and my place in my community? Like, that was part of the narrative. It was like, do I belong? Do I have value now that I'm changing in this way? And And in a funny way, Ken was, it's a similar story, but it's the other side of the coin where he went to the real world and was like, oh my God. Like the men are in charge here. Like how how empowering is that to me? So again, like there's all of these sort of like sub sub stories and sub messages in the movie that that I found compelling. And and when I think about my own journey, you know, for me, I grew up in, in a in a space where there was so much room for me to be who and what I was. Like emotion was never made wrong. I was never made wrong for for who I was or what I wanted. So so the shame piece didn't formulate in me in that way, although I have my own kind of, you know, kind of constellation of, of shame justification. But but for me, it was more about like, there was a lack of, of structure and a lack of, of existing roles for me. My dad wasn't a big part of my life growing up. And, and that left this gap that I wasn't even aware of until late adolescence. You know, like I, I, I genuinely tried my best, but, but could feel this underlying sense of like, I don't have firm ground to stand on as a man in the world. Now, obviously as a child, it didn't operate in those words, but, but that was my sense is like, I don't, I'm not standing on something solid to move out into the world with. And of course, like that's how we develop. I, I, I use dad to have that before I have it. He, he is my solid ground to, to use, you know, to use, to move out into the world in that way. And, and without that, I, I lacked it. And it, it continues to be a piece of me that I work with because you know what we don't develop in in childhood and early adolescence <laughs> comes much slow, more slowly and and with more effort to us as adults um so anyway like the piece that I wanted to bring forward was just around uh, a kind of compassion for the identity that we have like I think sometimes we get into this place where we maybe we live for a time where we're not even aware that we have this identity that's not really fully us but then we wake up to that and we're like, oh God, this is gross. Like, I just want to get rid of this. And and what I've discovered is that that inclination and that desire to like, get rid of what's not good or nice about us is throwing the baby out with the bathwater. That, that these identities are not meant to be discarded and then we create with a blank slate. It's like, no, no, no. Whatever you have as your sense of self, whatever your story is as a human being, whatever your shame package is, almost everyone's walking around with one. That's the raw material that you get to create something new with. Um, and that there's just, for me, there's no avoidance of that. Anything, anything that doesn't fully include your current package is a form of bypassing. And, um, you know, I, th- I, th- I think the frame of Barbie, at least in my earlier experience of it, felt like that it was like this, this gross superficial overlay that didn't honor the human condition. And, and didn't allow people to come into real relationship with themselves in spite of what maybe the genesis of the idea of Barbie wanted or what the intention was. 
Anyway. Um, yeah, you know, it's funny, Dolphin, because you're, you're touching into something that is so fundamental and integral to evolution that I feel like it's something that's continually pushed to the side as a cliche and not the priority. Um, compassion, like compassion, compassion for the suffering that has led to us having the identity, not just the suffering, but the aspect that, that had us become this thing that we, that we don't like within ourselves, the shame that we carry, the, the, the insecurity that we carry. When we actually come to this awareness, and I feel like there are so many people coming to this threshold. This feels like the, the beginning of the awakening and the embodiment process of that moment where we realize there's something in my life that I really don't like, and oh my God, I might actually be a part of why I don't like it. And that is so deeply confronting because we're so trained to point fingers outside of us as to why life isn't working. And we're not given, we're not given the tools. We're given like we're given therapy. We're we're given psychology. We're given, okay, I can understand my neuroses. Um, but how do I actually shift this? How do I actually grieve this? I feel like the majority of the suffering that at least I see in my work and that I'm addressing in my work in human beings is um, a lack of willingness or like a terror of being with the, the grief of everything that we have endured and suppressed for a very long time. That we reach this, my perception is that we reach this point where we realize, oh my God, I have been suppressing and abandoning myself for a very long time. I haven't been listening to myself for a very long time. Um, or I haven't been honoring or loving myself for a very long time. And that's heartbreaking to feel that, to actually like be with that, that yes, perhaps I've had people in my life do things to me that weren't kind but likely I've also been talking to myself in a way or invalidating myself in a way that's created where I am right now. And that's deeply sad. Um, and we're not taught how to be with those emotions, especially men. You're actually conditioned to not be with those emotions and God forbid anyone else sees you in those emotions. Um, and I don't actually think we can have healthy culture without it. I mean, one of one of my core teachers is a carrier of, um, you know, Francis Weller's grief work and Maladoma Patrice Somme of the Dagara tradition's grief work. That grief ritual is a huge part of healthy culture, where where grieving and release and being seen in our grief, being witnessed in our grief, is actually an integral part of a healthy culture. I think there's a lot of people walking around not being compassionate with ourselves and in a chronic state of self-judgment of I'm sad and I shouldn't be sad. I feel this way and I shouldn't feel this way. Um, and we don't know how to, we haven't been taught how to be with it. Um, and I know that's a bigger, that's a bigger topic, but I, I pray that for people who are watching, like, likely if you're human, you're carrying grief. 
and um, it deserves space at the table. Yeah, it makes me think of for, for us to make room for and face and feel that grief, which I again, I think there's a staggering reservoir of unfelt, unprocessed grief in almost everyone. And uh, it's not a bad thing. It, it can become a bad thing because of our repression of that and our, our coping with that. But anyone who's really surrendered to grief knows how much meaning and beauty is there as as that grief starts to kind of move and transform. But, you know, the thing that, that I think is is really, really important is if we don't have a reason to to shift orientation and perspective to face and feel that grief, it won't make sense. Like there's just so much pain there. Why would I do that when I could just watch a movie or eat this treat or, you know, watch this pornography or like whatever our go-to coping is. And so for me, and, and this is something like John Verveke and, and a number of other kind of really deep thinkers have engaged in this dialogue about the the meaning crisis. It's like modern humanity is in a kind of meaning crisis where we're not able to properly contextualize our life. And in particular, we're not able to contextualize what's hard about our lives. And and in in many ways, because we've created a culture that insulates us from the meaning and the difficulty. So anyway, and I think Barbie is is a kind of archetypal example of that. Like at least in its most superficial iteration, it's like everything needs to be perfect. I should be happy. Like, and this was at the beginning of the film. It was like, you're supposed to be happy. You're supposed to be perfect. If anything goes wrong, like immediately, like do something about it. And And, you know, how do we shift the narrative? How do we shift the communication around grief and messiness and difficulty so that young children learn, oh, this is not something to run from and this is not something to try to compensate for. This is integral to life and, and my role is to over time learn how to be with it in a way that that not only doesn't get in the way of the meaning of my life, but actually facilitates the deepening and the expansion of the meaning of my life. And I will add in this one piece and then I'd love to hear from you, Philippe, of, you know, there was a, there was a nod to the honoring of grief where Barbie shed her first tear and there was something of like, wow, like that was uncomfortable, but it actually felt kind of good. So there was an acknowledgement of that. So when I look at me, at this movie, it's for me, it's a classic hero's journey. You know, there's, you know, there's the, there's, there's, there's all the stages of the hero's journey and you, you know, the, and the hero's journey really, it's a, it's, it's an up level. It's, it's a, it's an evolution process. You know, you go from life is as it is and then something shifts and then it changes everything and then you can't go back you can't go back to your life the way it was because now you know just a little bit more something has shifted enough that you have to go on the adventure and then you meet the, the allies and the teachers or just the people that are there to help and um and you come out of it upgraded up leveled and one of the things I'm I'm noticing about this day and age is that things are changing so rapidly that people want the quick sort of I want to be re, I want my brain to be rewired I want to be unleashed I want to be I I want to be changed already because things are changing around me so quickly that I have to keep up and the truth is is that 
because we're relational creatures and because it takes time to to integrate these changes and we do it not just inside of ourselves we're in relationship to ourselves but in relationship to each other this stuff takes time it takes engaging with ourselves being in our with our own feelings being with our grief being with this sense making which also takes its own its, its own minute to uh to, to understand this is where I was going. Now I want to shift my direction a little bit. I want to go in a different direction. All of this stuff takes time. It also takes conversations like we're having right now. If we could just <coughs> download Kung Fu like in the Matrix and then just be ready for the next bit of change in our society, we we would want to do it. But I think these things take time for a reason. It's just just the nature of who we are and and how we grow for ourselves and with each other that allows us to um that a lot in the, i think it was in lila by persig you know the the person who also wrote zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance and he speaks of the the dynamic patterns and the static patterns the dynamic patterns is is when we're in, in active change but we can't always be in dynamic patterns. We actually have to find places of rest. And these are the static patterns that kind of allow us to stay where we are at the stage that we're at and instead of evolving back. So I feel like in order to reach these plateaus <coughs> that are really useful to have and also for other people to see as reference points, um, it we have to take the time to... Um, to find out what is this new truth that I can hold on to, whether it's an identity, whether it's a it's a place inside myself that feels um, that feels like at the end of a never-ending series of hero's journey that we go through. Like now, I can rest here, and and I can be certain of that, and I can tell others about. It. And I believe that this is this is partially why why we become teachers and facilitators, is because we have something that is stable enough that we can offer the world for somebody else to hoist themselves and kind of go just a little bit higher. I love this. And to me, Philippe, this is where you're guiding the conversation um, to internal union um, as opposed to external union. As, you know, we, we look at how the patriarchy influenced male and female, where it kind of pedalized the the man and kind of, I'm, I'm using strong words, but subjugated the woman. So if we look at this through the lens of masculine and feminine polarity, where there's a masculine and a feminine energy that exists in every being, regardless of gender, there's the yin and the yang that forms, forms the perfect whole. And when there's fragmentation, it creates, it creates harm. It creates fragment, it creates uh, separation. Um, to me, what you're describing is what the patriarchy did to that internal balance, where it pedestalized the more masculine qualities of of execution, of of speed, of efficiency, of of penetration, of like let's get the thing done and let's get there fast. But it fragmented from the feminine, which is okay, well, let's feel into our surroundings. And ensure that this is in harmony with like this ecosystem here. Let's really feel in and ensure that not only are these the best actions to take, but we're taking them in a way that's attuned and connected to this 
this this person that's taking the action and how it impacts the world and the people and the environment around it. And okay, uh, we just took this masculine action. How does this person, how is this person impacted by it? Um, how are they feeling? Did this action just catalyze a, a massive shift in this person that we actually need to take the time and space to allow the feminine to feel and, and integrate this experience so that we're not trying to get there as fast as we can. But meanwhile, we've got a person with three broken limbs that, that's hopping on one leg as fast as they can to get there. Um, so the, it's, it's looking at what the patriarchy didn't just do to a person in a male body and a person in a field body, a female body, but what did it do to our internal landscape? And does it actually prioritize the feminine qualities of being with emotion and, and rest and integration? Um, or is it just pedestalizing the action? Because if we're repressing the feminine qualities, we can't have... We can't have healthy masculine qualities without integrated feminine qualities. I want to bring in a piece uh, that that I think will move this in a direction of, of maybe some more practicals for people that are listening around their their relational life. Um, I really enjoy listening to uh, a man named Daniel Schmachtenberger. He's he's I consider him an integrative thinker. He he's sort of involved in a lot of fields, but he he's really looking to kind of weave it all into a a fundamental sense making of of humanity and kind of where we're going and he talks about things that he calls hyper objects so these are ideas that that are far too complex to actually understand you can't get into a full understanding of these hyper objects and you know i would consider human culture to be that and and in a way i think you could meaningfully and and with some utility hold up that idea of hyper object to the patriarchy like we we talk about it as if it's a thing, but but the reality of of what's actually there in our polarized ways of being, whether those are natural and innate and good, or whether they're distorted and and dissociated and, and dysfunctional, that that there is something that patriarchy is pointing to when we when we use the word when we when we talk about it, we're pointing to to this hyper object, this incredibly vast, deep, multi leveled, multifaceted, complex thing. And so, okay, great. Like, I think it's important to know, and you don't have to reuse these words, but like, are we talking about a hyper object here or are we talking about a chair? And even a chair is more than what we think it is. But there's, I think there's a, there's a difference that's relevant. And so there is something going on that, that we could call patriarchy. And I believe that everything has value, but not equal value. And, and where we go wrong as human beings is, is when we miss interpret the levels of value. So there is a, a value to qualities of masculinity and patriarchy. And if those things get overvalued, we're out of balance. And if those things get undervalued, we're out of balance. And one thing that I noticed as I was watching the film is, again, I, I didn't experience a, a representation of a man that really felt empowering to me throughout the entire film. Zero. And And what I also know is that you know, in the context of a conversation around patriarchy is what you have in, in the kind of male dominated world is a very small percentage of hyper focused, hyper motivated men 
who are oriented to control and domination and and you know all those qualities that I think we would normally associate with the patriarchy. But 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 that's like the very far end of a bell curve of how men can show up in the world. So a very small percentage. And then you have what what I believe is like a a, a left shifting bell curve of femininity in men. So there's actually a lot of men and and again we can get into this conversation who don't feel like there's room. They've been shut down. There wasn't room for them. They didn't feel empowered. They didn't have a role model. They didn't have a community to develop as a man. And and in the absence of that support and the, in the absence of a, of a kind of a clear internal desire and focus to like develop those aspects of themselves, a lot of men in modern times are left feeling and actually showing up as much more feminine, much less confident, much less grounded. And so again, there's like this divergence of like incredibly powerful, you know, A-type men that have most of the power and resources in the world. And it just happens that there's women go there too, but there's way more of those kinds of people that are that are male than female. And so all of this to say, um, what what is it for men to find themselves and to begin stepping back onto what I would call a really healthy, nourishing developmental trajectory as a man in the world, knowing that that some of the framing of patriarchy has men has made men feel ashamed for being men, has made men afraid of of stepping into their full power because of how terrible that combination of man and power has been framed for them. And and what is the what is the loss? What is the the wound for women to grow up in a world where it appears as though there are these really dangerous, dysfunctional, power-hungry men, and then these men that are almost not men. Like that's, and I've heard women call like, I, "Where are the men? Where are the men that I want to be with in this world?" So I don't even have an answer right now, but I just wanted to lay that out, and I would love to hear uh, thoughts from from both or either of you too. Well. First of all, I, I just want to say I agree. There wasn't any representation of healthy, secure men in the in the movie that I saw, which was surprising to me. Um, like what? And there, there's a part of me that looked at the movie from a slightly different angle, and I and I thought, is this the way women see men? Is is as uh, you know, it, of course, the movie is about is about women primarily, and is about men uh, in in a secondarily, at least the way I perceived it. And so, fair enough, there was the flip, and there's the, and but for me, there's a there's this sense of even towards the end, the man was always just a little bit devalued or a little bit lower, which is like I don't have anything specifically against that, um, but it didn't feel it didn't feel like it was with the times either. Like when we're at a place where I feel like we're starting to see that patriarchy affected both men and women, and even though men seem to have more power, the way they were holding that power was com- in some ways compulsive. Like if you had that power, you had to use it. If you didn't use it, somebody else was going to come along and take it. And so now I see that we're at an age where roles are becoming more diverse. The level of power is, is changing for, for these roles. And everyone is looking for what can I step into as an archetype that will be valued and and sh- and sh- and that I can that I can that I can hold that people will look at and say this is valuable for society. And because because 
<coughs> because men have always seen how much power they have as matching the level of value. And I think for women, the flip side has been beauty or attractiveness and things are changing. Then men, are, the men who don't have power or start to adopt more feminine qualities, which fair enough, I think is, is a great form of integration. But what I'm not seeing yet is how this is seen as valuable. I'm not seeing the. I'm not seeing men saying, "Oh, I'm I'm more feminine. I'm more integrated. Oh, I'm 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 looking into my emotions. I'm looking into my own sense of messiness and integrating that, and that makes me feel valued and seen." I'm not seeing that yet. Uh, so I I really wonder about that. I love um, you bringing this up, and um, it makes me think of the way that. Barbie is portrayed at the beginning of the movie, which is essentially, I don't need a man. They're superfluous. She says that, I think, at the end of the movie. And to me, um, that's not the empowered woman. That's the woman who is compensating for feeling so disempowered for so long that I don't need a, I don't need a man is a safe way that the safest seeming way to never find herself in a situation where she might be controlled or disempowered by a man again. Or let down. Or let down. This is really This is how I avoid heartbreak. Mm. Um, and it's not super conducive to men feeling that invitation to step in, there is an impact because I actually think it's beautiful that men want to serve women. I think it's beautiful that men desire the, the love and praise of women. I think that's a beautiful thing. And I think women want that from men in their own ways. Um, there's an unhealthy expression of that, but in its essence, like, I believe men do enjoy like being of service to women and being appreciated by women in nourishing ways. Um, and it makes me think of this other reality TV show called Love is Blind, which is one of my like favorite reality TV shows to watch. However, this most recent season, I was like, wow, they, they, there was kind of a fail in this season. There were only two couples. And one of the things that I noticed with, in, with both of the women when they were in partnership with their men is that there was this um, imbalance where the woman was allowed to be completely open about how she felt about everything, what she liked, what she didn't like. But I noticed circumstances with both of the male partners where when they said, hey, like, I didn't like how you did that. I didn't like how you shut up in that circumstance or the thing that you said, like, really upset me and it didn't land well with me. What I noticed in both of the women and that is that there was this kind of intense, almost like, how dare you disagree with me? And kind of this punishment of the man for having feelings that might invalidate hers. And to me, this is a spot for us as women to look at where we're not giving men the same permission to have feelings about what comes up in the relationship that we as women feel like we are entitled to have. And where does that come from? 
because that's coming from somewhere. And I think it's something interesting to look at. Yeah, I, I absolutely love that you brought that up. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a part of some men's groups on Facebook and obviously I have a lot of conversations with men. Uh, and that's a, that's a one that comes up a lot it is, you know, for uh, especially kind of since the 70s, 80s, the feminist movement really started to move in, in, in a kind of a direction that, that had more influence in society. And there was a call for men to be more in touch with their feelings and to become more transparent and vulnerable. And like, let's get rid of this two-dimensional man with no feeling kind of archetype. And a, a lot of men experience like doing the the real vulnerable work of, of having spent a lifetime not going to their emotional world and beginning to touch into it and share it and getting just eviscerated or shut down or made wrong for sharing that. And like that experience for a man is so disempowering and or infuri infuriating because of how hard hard that transition for men can be and to go there and then to basically be punished and ruthlessly in some cases um it's it's really problematic and and you know you ask that question like where does that come from and to me it, it's again it's this thing of of levels of value like there's value in a man being in touch with his feelings and being emotional and being transparent and and willing to share what's going on for him and I just think about, well, well, from an evolutionary perspective, is there a way or a time or a circumstance within which a man becoming soft and, and kind of gentled inside to the point where those feelings can be transparently you know, felt and expressed, where could that be a problem? Well, if he's got shit to do, like import, like survival things to do, that that's not the right time for that. So I think, I believe that at the core of it, where that becomes, where that feels destabilizing for the woman is like, oh, like, can I trust this guy to do the things that need to be done for us to survive? And, and, and so I think that's a, that's like a, like an, a very deep, like instinctual piece. And then anything over top of that or around the level of conditioning that's around, I don't trust men or I don't try, I don't trust men and their emotions. They're not, men with their emotions are not safe. Like then that becomes this cocktail of of real uneasiness for a woman as a man starts to go to those emotional places. Um, and I think we can get lost in emotion. I think I think both men and women can can become kind of um, just so, so captivated by emotion and the stories that that arise in emotion in a way that's not honest and that that's not you know helpful and 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 connective. So anyway, I wanted to get in and say that because that piece is is rich and alive for a lot of men. And I think it's a place for both men and women to do some real healing and, and, and reaching for one another in spite of the, the gap that might be there. Can I add something to that? So I see three important pieces. First of all, the, the primal piece, I think, is, I think it's important to, to note or at least to look into. We've, we've evolved, we've evolved to in the ways that we have. And not that long ago, nature was doing everything it could to kill us. Uh, and that's just, you know, evolutionarily, it's very, very recent that we're actually, you know, living this long and, um, and, and able to overcome nature. And so, so that, that's important. Like at a primal level, there are things that are still at play that we can barely fathom. It's below the level of consciousness and we can only observe it indirectly. Um, the second piece, I think, is 
if you're in a relationship and both people are trying to express their emotions, it's going to be difficult because often what needs to happen is one person needs to be sort of in the, in the holding pattern while the other person's expressing their emotions. That, that requires that the person holding be good at what they do, be good at the holding piece while the other person is good at expressing their emotions. But so ostensibly, <coughs> evolutionarily, this has worked well for men and for women to be in that role. Uh, but if you flip the roles, there isn't as much evolution behind it, first of all. There isn't as much cultural um, cultural know-how as well. And then as at a personal level, there there's probably <coughs> a lot less practice around it. So the skill level is low. So on both sides, you're expressing the emotions, which can look very mature at first as it evolves into something that's more mature and more grounded. And the holding also will be more immature. Ah, oh, I can't deal with this, or this is too much. Or, so both <coughs> the situation of, of trying to express emotions at the same time will not work or not work as well, or the situation where there's a difference in skill level or, or ability to do the reverse, the reverse polarity. I, I, so I want to say something, and, and I, I think this, it's time for us to kind of move in the direction of, of, of weaving what we've talked about so far together and and what some of the pieces that have felt really meaningful to me and I want to bring it to a more, more practical place which is as human beings we have identity I think it, it evolved for a reason I think it has utility and and identity in many ways grows out of the seeds and the soil of culture so family community and the broader culture that we're a part of but it's not it's not a static, it's not a statue. You know, the identity is unfolding and, and we as kind of conscious agents in the midst of a body and an emotional life and then a mental life and an identity, we play a role in how the identity evolves over time. And, and the piece you're bringing up here, Philippe, feels super practical, which is in our relationships, it is the emotional domain where we get into the most difficulty but it's also the domain where we where we have the most opportunity to connect meaningfully. So there's something about this emotional space where if we learn to be with it and, and communicate in the midst of it well, all of the things that are hardest about relationship become like the, the gold of our relationships. And so, you know, if we want to kind of touch back into anything about the movie or the narrative there, great. But what I'm really interested from the two of you is for someone who has been listening and enjoying and appreciating kind of some of the nuances and, and depth that we touched into, what is there for them to do about learning more about their identity, their sense of self, and maybe how it came together? But but again, moving forward, how does one become better at holding their own emotions or the emotions of, of a partner or a lover? How does someone become better at being with their own emotions and then learning how to authentically express what's going on for them in that emotion? Um, in a way that that isn't um, kind of uh, a, um, a bull in the china shop, you know, like how do we start to learn to do this emotional dance together in a way that really cultivates connection and, and love and well-being? So, yeah, anything you two have to say about that? Yeah, um, there, there's two pieces. And first, um, Philippe, I just want to 
appreciate like what you were saying just kind of brought up what it brought up for me is um in this dance of men and women i feel like what we're what we're really wanting is we're wanting to have more range it sounds like really this impulse is like we want to have more access to ourselves and what is possible in relationship and that's not a need we didn't need that. You know, you were talking about like nature has been wanting to kill us off. For, we didn't need that range, but it's something we're reaching for. It's something beautiful that we're reaching for. So acknowledging we don't need it, but we desire it on one level. So there's going to be some growth involved and required for all of us to cultivate the skill necessary to navigate this dance because we're saying yes to we're saying yes to like, I'm going to learn how to hold things that I'm not biologically designed to know because I want more than I've had before. So that's a beautiful thing. We acknowledge that we desire more. And as a result, we need to learn how to hold more individually within ourselves. It's not necessarily going to be something that comes easy. So to your question, Dolphin, of how do I gain access to more without feeling like I need to bite or grasp or claw or manipulate or force in order to have it. And what comes up for me is, um, first and foremost, if there's something that you're wanting to experience with another person in relationship, one of the most important things that you can do is um, have approval for that desire within yourself, that there's something in you that wants to have this richer connection or access to more of yourself in relationship. And it's not wrong. It's a beautiful desire. And that there actually are people out there who want to meet you in that, even if that's not your experience right now. Um, I think a lot of the challenge that people experience in relationship is I feel this, I feel this longing to bring this part of myself forward, but I'm not um, I'm not feeling met or the person I'm in relationship with right now, like isn't meeting me there and it's making me feel wrong. And maybe I'm silly or stupid for wanting this. What you desire is actually available to you. And it might actually even be available to you in the relationship that you are in. Maybe it's not, but maybe it is. And to me, one of the biggest things is the places where we sabotage ourselves because we don't have full approval for what we want. If I am secretly judging myself for wanting to have a different experience in my relationship, I'm not going to be able to express those desires and those needs in a really clear, connected way that facilitates the type of relating that I want. And I'm never actually going to know if this relationship that I'm in can give it to me, if I'm attacking myself even before this person attacks me. So really committing to the seeing myself so clearly and more clearly, like where am I my enemy before I even have a conversation? Because if I can bring that compassion, that loving approval of like, it's actually okay that I want this, and it's actually okay if this person can't or doesn't want to give it to me. And I have choice here about how I move forward. And then you're on the journey. <laughs> what a journey it is. <laughs> I could go next. 
So a lot, a lot of my work involves making sense of things. Some people start with feelings and then they make sense of things later. I make sense of things first and then the feelings come. So and that could be related to attachment style. I would say, first of all, um, something we referred to a little bit earlier, which is um, everything, everything we are was built on top of what we were before or what happened before. Like we, that's how we evolve ourselves is we build on top of what was there before with their experiences or, or awareness or, and, um, and the, and the internal work that we do on ourselves also builds on top of what happened before. So we're, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a loop of experiences and, and understanding and feeling and understanding and, and experiencing. And we continue doing that and it's informed by what happened before. So to understand and and have compassion and acceptance and go through the feelings that come along with that, I think is, is crucial. Um, the second piece I would say is if you do this well, then you're on the journey to becoming more secure. That's the, the natural, uh, the natural journey of becoming more secure is to learn from, from that loop and to better and to better understand what you're made of, how you how and who you are and also how and and who other people are that you're close to and how the world is and to have this 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 sense of equanimity and peace around it because it's no longer surprising you there's enough awareness security wisdom and maturity to just take reality as it comes and then there's the question like well how do i find a person that can do this with me and i think i think a <coughs> good rule of thumb is to find someone who's relatively at the same stage of security uh, as you are. So this way you're not you're not taking too much of their you're not leading necessarily the, the whole time. Sometimes they lead, sometimes you lead. And it's a it's a good place to be because there's a sense we're we're doing this together. We're we're on this journey together. And it's a slow process to give it the time that it takes to learn and to grow. And then there's the how. How do you do that? And I would say one version of becoming secure is to develop a better relationship to needs. And by that, I mean to, to understand needs as, uh, sorry, un understand feelings as sort of the messenger that, that informs us of what the needs are. So that once we understand what these needs are, or which can also look like desires, we can actually not only take care of that for ourselves, but we can also be in collaboration with others around meeting those needs. And also finding the overlap between our our own needs and our own desires and boundaries, and the other person's desires, needs, and boundaries, and in also pace. And as we find that overlap, we're able to do it even more closely together. That's what partnership is for me. So it's really about the collaborate, the, the ultimate collaboration of ourselves with our partners, with our loved ones, with our community and our friends, and ultimately with reality. So it's really about having a deep dive into what do I need? How am I feeling? What do I need? And where is that coming from? So that as we move forward, we can do the self-care that will fulfill those needs, that will support us in becoming even more grounded, that will allow us to be with others in those same needs and desires and feelings. Because we'll see out there what we see inside of ourselves. And there's a certain grace that will grow out of that. Mm. I like it. Yeah, there's just an image that was coming to me as you were speaking, Philippe, about 
you know, and this is very much centered in attachment. It's like we're born into this world and we fundamentally need our caregivers. We, we are entirely dependent on them in all ways. And that, you know, if if the right needs are met in the right way uh, and, and progressively over time we grow into ourselves, we become kind of whole unto ourselves and, and we can depend on ourselves. And that's sort of the ideal trajectory out from dependence to independence, to interdependence. And so then there's this journey back where we learn how to be in real and full relationship with, with others and, and often another uh, in, in sort of the deepest sense. And then, and then we start again. So there's this beautiful kind of spiral, cyclical unfolding of like utter dependence that develops into the direction of into, in, independence that moves back into interdependence. And then we create the next generation that is entirely dependent on us and and the interdependence is the container or the the kind of the 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 fabric that this dependent new being is is held in so then that's that's the secure way and anywhere that security is threatened or or insulted or or not available that i'm talking about a lot about completion and incompletion there's these incomplete cycles of development that don't take place and they just get saved and to me that's what trauma and that's what kind of dysfunctional behavioral and relational dynamics are they're just the ways in which what's incomplete in us expresses itself and and so for me i think this self-awareness piece is really big we, we need to be willing and able to start to look at ourselves more honestly and to go oh yeah where where do i miss the mark or the or you talked beautifully today about um just how are we sabotaging ourselves? How are we getting in the way? How are we withholding the love we want from this other person? How are we hurting ourselves in the way that we don't want to be hurt by them? And when we start to see those things with more clarity and resolution, what I think we're really seeing is ground zero for our healing and development. It's like, oh, yeah, those places where I have not really shown up with, with my full presence and my full care, those are the places I need to begin living my life meaningfully addressing and and. I think one other thing I'd like to say is that I think a lot of times we might get little visions of what's possible, you know, whether it's a you know, TED talk or some great podcast or whatever. We have a moment where we're like, oh, like I get it now. And that sometimes I think we want the getting it to be, to mean being there. Like you can get something intellectually or even in your body or emotions, but the integration of that getting, that's like an awakening. We have an awakening experience where we now know more than we did a moment ago. But knowing something and integrating and embodying it are two <laughs> very different things. And that's where patience and compassion and, and I think like having sustainable relationships of people that will walk the path alongside you. And I'm not even talking about partners. Like, do we have community? Do we have friendship? Do we have mentors? Um, those pieces become the stopgap for us as we start to go, oh, wow, I'm still four years old in this way. Like in this particular area of my life, I am four years old. Can that be held with compassion while we start to lean on people that are further ahead of us so that we can learn in the way that maybe we should have, if we, if you don't mind me using the word, the way that we should have or could have when we were little and, and we just didn't. And so now, how do we come to these pieces? How do we come to these parts? How do we play the role of, of context and container instead of con content and identity? which sort of brings us full circle to kind of where we started. So not enough time. I knew, I knew it would feel this way. 
but uh, I had just an absolute pleasure uh, inviting you both on. I had total trust that we'd go to some beautiful places. Uh, just appreciating you both again for showing up and, and sharing what you did. Uh, just open the space. If there's anything else either of you wanted to complete with, uh, I'll make room for that, and then uh, I will close our dialogue, trialogue. Final piece that comes up for me is actually something that um, you mentioned, Philippe, earlier on, of just um, the world is moving so fast. Um, and if we remove any pressure from another person and we just look at the pressure we might feel to move fast because of how fast the world is moving, um, there's actually some beautiful form of, of sacred activism that I feel in choosing to give ourselves the time we need to, to truly be with this process of, of knowing ourselves more deeply and loving ourselves more deeply and putting the time in to have truly deep and meaningful community and, and friendship. Um, because when we don't have those things, when we don't have meaningful connections with ourselves, with our loved ones, with our friends, with our family, um, it's so much easier to feel out of fet and, and kind of negative and like, what's the point of with everything going on in the world around us? So um, this invitation of rather than looking at taking the time to, to self-inquire as a waste of time, it's actually a form of um, breathing into more of the type of world that perhaps you want to be a part of. I love this. I love this. I think uh, there's a, a lot of what's been mentioned in the call um, has something to do with pacing. The time it takes to learn and grow and the time it takes to realize, the time it takes to integrate, the time it takes to feel. These are like we're in, in some ways... <laughs> We're, we're, we're facing biological social and social and emotional limits around how quickly we can pick things up and make that, make good use of them. And I, as you were speaking, Ariel, I was just realizing, I think this is what eldership is about. Like as we get older and we have to kind of, as I'm getting older, at least, well, we're all getting older, but I, uh, at least on this call. As I'm getting older, I'm realizing that I have to, everything I'm learning has to make sense with what I've learned before. And I'm integrating all of that and it's a massive complexity. And I'm feeling myself slowing down for good reason. And it's in that slowing down that I get to show others the benefits and the beauty of that slowing down. And I, and I see that, you you know, that that as, our as a community of coaches, we're advocating for going back to the body and going back to the heart and and how, and and going back to that that the slower pace of connection to ourselves and to each other, I want to leave with this last piece, which which I've come to I came to realize about two decades ago, which is transformation can happen in an instant, but real growth takes time. It just there's just no way around it, and so I invite everyone to just to um, make peace with the time it takes to become uh, what you want to become. Take it one step at a time, breathe into it, make full, take full advantage of it and, and don't lose track of your trajectory. Thank you so much. Absolute pleasure. Wish you both well and I look forward to our next times to touch in and connect. Thank you so much for being here. You've been listening to the Better Relationship Podcast brought to you by RelationFlix. Please subscribe to the podcast and you can go and check us out at relationflix.com. We look forward to sharing so much more with you. And until next time, my friends, love well.